sellers are not taught in general that the threshold of trust that needs to be crossed before it becomes easy is they've got to be trusted more than that person trusts themselves with this decision. Great experiences build great leaders. Great leaders build great teams. This is Building Great Sales Teams. All right, guys, today on the podcast, I have Chris. And when I say it was an honor conversing with this man and being able to share his insights with you on the podcast, I mean it. You know, a lot of people share nuggets and things that you can go and execute in your business right away. But what Chris really did for us today and that you're going to get to enjoy is he gave us kind of the understanding behind the curtain of sales and how... A lot of the things that we do work for closing customers and also work against closing customers. He gave us a lot of insight into technology and how it affects sales and how what we thought was right all along, that the human element will never be gone from sales and that we will always have to include that. And so without giving away the whole thing, let's get into it. Uh, with Chris, he's the CEO at Connect and Sell Inc., a modern technology that gives your business more live conversations with qualified prospects. He's also a 30-year veteran in multiple software startups. And it's keeping us from getting the best talent because they have to move to this very expensive place in a Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And uh, we already had people remote. I just looked at it. And we, and we had no money at that point. I mean, we had like $16,927 in the bank. And mm-hmm. so it was just one of my cost-saving moves. But man, am I glad I did it because when the pandemic hit, we were pre-wired for everything. The only thing we were still doing by traveling was test drives. We were traveling to customer sites because we do this thing we call an intensive test drive, which is a full production use of our system for one day. And it's mind-blowing, man. But, but it was great. You know, it was like, wow, we'll do it at their site. So we did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. So in one day, we cut them out and we saved 50000 bucks a month. Wow. <laughs> and they work just as well. 50000 a month we've been spending. It's like, we're so smart. Look at what we're doing. It's like, oh, we were wasting 50000 bucks a month. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> anyway, so how are you? How's business? How's things going? I'm good. Uh, business is good. So uh, besides the podcast, um, I have a, a solar company and then a direct sales company. So we do sales for uh, AT&T and uh, security. And, and then we're venturing into solar for the past year and a half or so, trying to get integrated in that to where we control everything from the sales process to the uh, customer service experience throughout the install and then the actual warranty, servicing the warranty as well. So Fantastic. I'm sure you guys are pretty familiar with, with solar where you're at. Well, we certainly are down in um, in Southern Arizona. So Helen, I'm married to Helen Finucci. Just, we just got married in July. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Helen and I decided sometime before we got married that we wanted to have a house in the Pacific Northwest where we could enjoy the summers here, but uh, the winters aren't so great. So yeah. we bought a place down in Southern Arizona near, kind of near the Mexican border. The place we bought has owned solar on it. 
So when we're not there in the summer, even though, you know, we got to run the AC to keep the house alive, right? We can set the AC to 85 and the house is fine. Yeah. And yeah. it ticks away and makes money for us in small dribs and drabs, which is kind of fun. Yeah. So it is a, you know, it's a net money maker for us, but it's also just nice to, I don't know. I'm an old solar fiend. My first science project I did in, uh, when I was a kid in 1966, I believe, was to you know acquire some exotic solar cells that are, were available at the time and i did a thing on solar energy and the, its future is in you know it, it was easy to predict what was going to happen you just oh, didn't absolutely. know how long it was going to take <laughs> yeah it's still it boggles my mind <clears throat> that you know i still get comments and stuff like that because i do a lot of social media and it's not really around solar um but every now and then it comes up and uh i still get comments and stuff people like oh, you know, I don't believe in solar or, you know, whatever the case is. That's like same thing as not believing in oil. You know, it's it's an energy producer. Why there's like, you know, and then they say like, oh, it takes oil to make a solar panel. Well, yeah, okay, sure. I mean, the traditional way to make it right now is, is, is a factory that uses, you know, fossil fuels. Sure. sure, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to convert to solar eventually, you know. Yeah, and it, yeah. We can it, has un, it has unlimited top end. I mean, there's. I remember in uh, in, in 1971, I think it was. Uh, I was a pretty nerdy person. Uh, Helen just pointed out to me that I still am, and I remember, <laughs> I remember calculating like, uh, you know, the practical amount of energy, like the you know the total number of gigawatts per hour of energy that was falling on in a practical way on all the roofs of all the buildings in the world. Oh, wow. And I give it that. And it's just, it's one of those numbers where you do that math and you go, holy moly, you're yeah. right. Someday folks are going to figure out how to make this work in a, in a, you know, mathematical sense, in a business sense for folks. And mm -hmm. I, to me, the big invention is, which was resisted pretty hard by utilities is the ability to, you know, sell power back to, back to the utility. I mean, that's the magic that's made it all happen. And then yeah. anyway, I'm a big fan. When I took this job, I was about to go down to Tucson and work at a company called Renew, R-E-H-N-U as the CEO. And Renew is a utility scale solar concept okay. that um, is come up with by this guy, Roger Angel. Roger is the winner of the Kisla Prize in Astronomy. And he's the world's greatest glass guy. He knows more about glass than anybody else who's ever lived, probably. And he's about 80-something years old. Mm -hmm. And his wife said to him one day, they're English, and she said, Raja, you've done nothing for the grandchildren. Our planet is heating up. They will inherit a hellhole. Why don't you fix it? And Roger goes, aye, aye, Eleanor. I suppose <laughs> I will. And he goes off and invents this thing which is it's unbelievable i mean you would appreciate it most people don't even you know would just go whatever yeah he figured out how to take window glass regular cheap window glass nothing special okay slump it with you know application of heat and molds into a, a parabolic mirror and silver it with 99.8 percent reflectivity okay and then so now you have a very concentrated source of heat right? Just by pointing at the sun. 
<clears throat> so just a, as an example, it can burn through a titanium blank that's half an inch thick wow. in one second. That's wow. how much heat you have concentrated, right? So then the question is, well, what do you do with that? So I said, well, I, I'm going to put the highest efficiency solar cells in the world there because they can be small. So we got, you know, tried the ones they put on spacecraft or right, right. were expensive, but he only needed about that. Right. So what would fit in the palm of your hand? Right. And then he, he hooked him up to a copper backing with pins coming out of it because yeah. super conductive for heat. And then essentially ran automotive, you know, coolant, right. Ethylene glycol over it at a high flow rate through the pins to take the heat away and ran that through a radiator. So now you have 20 kilowatts. <clears throat> Do you have 10, 20 kilowatts of power from, from a piece of window glass and a tiny handful of solar cells? And he put it on a tracker and he made his cheap tracker. It was really cool. It was like, you wouldn't believe it. It's a, an actual azimuthal tracker, you know, mm -hmm. does the whole bit, yeah. follows the sun. And there it was. And all the subsidies work and this thing is going to, we're going to put it on trailers and we're going to replace diesel. Wow. That's it. It's as simple as that. Same trailer, same everything, same pumps, nothing different for irrigation of pecans or whatever the yeah. hell they want to irrigate. Yeah. And take it to places with high, high diesel costs and with high rebates from government for various things, not just for solar, but for everything. Because mm -hmm. they, you know, when you go out into the res, all, there's all sorts of money you can tap if you know how to tap it. Right. So I put together this plan and said, okay, I'm going to come down. We're going to execute this plan. We're going to, you know, because utility scale solar is such a pain in the ass. Right. Takes hundreds of millions of dollars. So we're going to do it here and then we'll do it in Hawaii. Two places where there's plenty of sunlight. There's plenty of need to move water around because in Hawaii, it all runs to the sea before you can catch it. And, you know, it'll be straightforward. It's a single unit sitting on a trailer. We're going to learn how to box it up and put it in a small container and then have it kind of unfold and point itself right. at the sun. And you have, uh, you don't need your diesel. Kilowatts. 20 kilowatts. It's insane. You, that, that's, that's 15 to 18 panels worth of solar. Yeah. You understand yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. I'm condensing mean, yeah, it down to, I wrote to business, one. I wrote the business plan. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> obviously, you understand. I think I'm more talking to our listeners right now <laughs> because yeah, I am I absolutely using this in the podcast. This is amazing. Oh, are you? Well, I, you know, it kind of speaks to what happens when somebody brings a set of skills. This guy, Roger Angel, brought a set of skills that you wouldn't have thought were significant in the solar industry. Based on a vision that his wife had, which was you aren't doing anything, Roger. Roger, you schlub. Roger's like the most marvelous human being, creative, smart, you know, yeah. incredible, right? And um, I want, you know, but who to thunk it? Yeah, who to thunk? You can go look at it. The things down there in in the bottom of an empty swimming pool at a Bear Down Gym in the University of Arizona, really? tracking away. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that so, that's so cool. Anyway, that's what I was going to do. And then I ran into Connect and Sell. Yeah. And I ran into Connect and Sell because my a former employee called me up one day. And while I was contemplating, am I really going to pull the trigger on this move to Tucson from Silicon Valley? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about it, sitting in my backyard, looking out at the, at the golf course that we lived on. And I get this call. It's like, hey, Chris, you know, we're really looking for somebody like you to join Connect and Sell, my company. It's like, well, I looked at it. 
And I said, so uh, Ken, do you know what the phrase wholly uninterested means? <laughs> That's a long, good. <laughs> a long pause. And then he says, uh, look, you got to meet my, uh, my CEO, Sean McLaren. I said, Sean McLaren, like the Sean McLaren? Now, Sean McLaren is the, the inventor of the IBM's uh, mainframe storage industry. He wrote the code and he built the companies and he made the money. Wow. He's that guy. Wow. Right. So famous back in the day in a world I came out of, which uh -huh. was all the world of computer tech, especially storage, because I used to live in Boulder, Colorado, where storage was king. We had a company called Storage Tech there. And we had other companies that, you know, were like the big anchors. So it's like, yeah, I'll go meet that dude. Actually, I thought he was not alive anymore. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> he'd been gone from the scene for so long. So I went and met him the next morning. And five minutes later, I joined the company. And the reason I joined the company was twofold. One is I just said, Sean, like, are you telling me that you have a way of taking the, the number one thing that keeps us from doing business and, and making that problem go away? That is getting conversations between somebody who probably has a problem and somebody who knows they have a solution mm -hmm. and doing that in three minutes instead of an hour. That's what you have. So push a button, wait three minutes, talk to somebody. You have that and it's real. Oh, yeah. You sell it? Yeah. Scale? Eh. Not quite sure it scales yet. I said, well, well, how many units do you do? What is, what is the unit? He says, oh, it's this fully navigated dial. We navigate dials for people. We have agents navigating dials. They just don't ever talk to the target. I said, okay, well, that's interesting. How many last year? Seven million. I said, Sean, like if you did seven million push-ups right now, we'd call that at least I don't know, persistence, maybe stamina, maybe scale. He says, no, nah, not scale yet. And I said, well, I'm in anyway. I'm joining the company. So, seven, million, so seven million connections or seven million? No, seven million, seven million navigated dials. Okay, so nowadays, gotcha. we do, nowadays we do about 60 million navigated dials. Wow. So we've grown some. This was back in 2011. So I just joined. I, he said, well, what if I'm not hiring? And I said, you know, last I checked, this is America. I can work for whomever I want. It's a free country. It's like, uh, <laughs> okay. Assume the sale. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we kind of made a deal on the spot and um, I joined up as the head of products. And then over time, I did a lot of different jobs. I was the CMO, I was this, that, and the other thing. And finally, it's like, well, we wanted to go our own way. We were venture financed, but mm -hmm. kind of not classically. It was a little different from some Silicon Valley venture stuff. And it was a time to be independent. And so we made a deal with our VCs where we parted ways with them. We went bootstrapped 2014 and we've been doing that ever since. Wow. So, you know, we're, we're the, 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 the kind of company that investors would look at back then and go, eh, right. Where's the 25, eh, 50%, 100% year over year growth. Right. We preferred profitable and really understanding the problem, getting to the bottom of the problem, because the problem sounds easy, right? Push a button, talk to somebody. But now you have a question of, well, who's on the list? Is it a good list? Most people don't know their lists aren't any good. They don't know it because yeah. they don't talk to enough people to know it. So, and so you know, we, we got into that and we got into like what happens in the conversation because Frankly, most reps don't have enough conversations to know if they're any good, much less to, for management to know they're any good. Right. So we got into coaching technology and how to hold a cold call. And we came up with this thing called flight school to teach people how to be the best cold callers in the world. So 
you know, it's like one step after another, after another, you're kind of trying to find the edges of the problem. And sometimes we hoped that others would take it. Like we hoped the sales training industry mm-hmm. would take the problem of the cold call on. But as a matter of fact, they kind of don't, not in a way we think about it. They think of it as be brave, you know, pick up the phone. It's a lot of emotional stuff. Smash, but yeah, stuff. motivation, yeah. Exactly. And then there's a lot of gatekeeper stuff. Right. And Next and Cell eliminates the gatekeepers. So there's nothing, you know, it's like, where's the part that tells you how to get somebody to trust you in seven seconds? Because that's all you got, according to, I don't know, Chris Voss. He says you got seven seconds. Yeah. Who teaches that? Well, nobody was teaching that. So we just, and, and then who's teaching under pressure, under real, not simulation, not one conversation an hour, but you know, seven, eight coach conversations an hour. So you can take a team of eight people and have continuous coaching going on. Who's precision coaching just the first seven seconds for two hours. So we did, we came up with that and offer that as this thing called flight school. So that's what we've been doing is just kind of incrementally, you know, solving problems and getting customers and helping them and trying to understand what does it really take to dominate a market with the human voice? So there's a, there's a few pieces I want to get into here. One, the first one is you said, y'all, y'all kind of backed away from the VCs, right? And, and what I heard is it kind of enabled y'all not to worry about year over year growth, but more worry about the effectiveness of your product. Right. And then add on, I guess, accessories to the product that would kind of make it even more explosive in terms of the ROI on it, right? And then yeah. the, the, the second thing is the flight school. I'm very interested in that because I'm, I'm curious, is that something that the software can do or is that more something that your company does as an add-on? Sure, I'll answer it in the opposite order. So flight school is something that our company does. So we have, we have these flight school instructors and it's um, it's a live remote training and it's live fire. It's real conversations with real prospects. Uh, so it's four two hour sessions that we run. It starts with a messaging workshop. So we actually develop the, the message for that particular product. Mm-hmm. Um, what we find is you have to keep marketing people out of that process because as soon as they get involved, they pollute the message with stuff that makes the prospect say, yeah, thanks. We're, we're all set. Right. Cause they'll, they'll put the product in a category and talk about the category. And as soon as you do that, you've insulted the prospect by implying they don't know how to do their own thing. So instead of curiosity, what you get is this form of like psychological reactance, you know, don't tell me how to run my business. Don't, you know, you haven't established yet that you're an expert. We're set. We're already solving this problem because you right. never can sell to solve a problem. They're not already solving. Yeah. I, and- a lot of bots do that immediately. Oh, we can five X your revenue or we can uh, double your conversion rates. Well, who right. said my conversion rates were bad in the first place? Maybe I just don't like the company I'm using now aesthetically, you know what I'm saying? Or something like that, right. you know, like, no, I, I completely understand what you're saying. Like it's, it's this, you know, as we get further and further into automation, and this is one of the, you know, questions that I'm, or subjects I wanted to get into too. Um, you lose that salesmanship, right? And uh, it, you lose those data-driven decisions of what to say next, you know, in yeah. your script or in your sales floor, or whatever the case is. And, yeah. uh, you know, everybody thinks you can just drop a lead into a CRM and 
it'll come back to you in the follow-up. You know what I mean? And I, I just I just think there's so much more to that. There's a human element to that that you have to mix in there. You know? And, the and, human element is everything. Right. It's, I mean, when, you know, I, I'm not a classic sales guy, right? I came out of physics and math. Right. And when I had my first sales job, it was selling Fuller Brush door-to-door because I needed money and I needed a job I could get that day, literally that day. I love that. So you're like, it was like, what was I going to do? (laughs) So I just broke it down. And, you know, one of the things you do in the world of, of physics is you, you know, what can't happen, right? There is no perpetual motion, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So you don't even look at those kinds of things. You know, the lay person looks at potential solutions to any problem and they'll come up with either something somebody else told them, or they'll come up with what I call a flying car. Wouldn't it be great to have a flying car? Yeah. You just can't make one, right? Sorry. It's just too hard, right? So I just looked at the problem and said, well, what can't you do? And I realized if I knock on your door in Phoenix and it's 115 degrees out and you answer that door and it's me, one thing I can't do is just sell you something because you weren't thinking about buying something at that moment. So what could I do? Well, I could make you an offer. To do what? Something I know that's of use to you that you don't know, potential use. So here was my pitch that I came up with. And I just kind of thought, you know, this is like something that at least won't be guaranteed to fail. Maybe it'll work. I knock on the door. It's almost always a, a woman in her 30s and 40, or 40s or maybe older Arizona who answers. Air conditions flowing out. She's losing, you know, $5 a minute. Yeah. Right? <laughs> out the door it goes. And, and I'm standing there. So I'd say, Hi, I'm Chris Beal. I'm your new Fuller Brush man. You probably don't know what Fuller Brush is. I sure don't. And that would establish that for the purpose of this conversation, as Anthony Inarino goes, I was choosing in the relationship to be one down explicitly saying she's an expert on what she knows and I'm not, but I'm taking a guess. And then she, she would always just stand there for a while and then ask, well, how can I help you? <laughs> That's a great question to get when you knock on a door, right? And I said, well, I don't know if this is true, but I've been told that my company carries some products that you can't buy in stores that are really useful around the house. And if I were to go research our products and find one or two that I really think could change your life, can I come back and share those with you for five minutes? And everybody said yes. Everybody said yes. Not some people. It's like, man, think about it. How hard? What are you going to say to that? No, yes is good because you don't think I'm going to come back, right? Mm -hmm. And if I do, you're a little bit curious. It's like, is he really going to do the research? Is he? What would these products be? Notice I made no claims about the products except you can't get them in stores, and they're they're good around the house. Yeah, was it right? So everybody said yes. I took meticulous notes. I had not seven demographics. I came up with 14 products. Each demographic got two. I came back, fulfilled my promise, made sure it was in the early evening or late, later evening when the air conditioning wasn't quite so fierce and right. going out the door. And everybody bought something because I had one product you buy unless you, you hated me. It was unique and it was, it was a dollar. Mm-hmm. And then I had one product you'd buy a lot of if you thought you needed it, like my famous spider spray, where I'd kill a black widow spider and hold it in my hand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're from Ohio and you're seeing a black widow spider sitting there, you didn't even know you had them. And now there's one in this guy's hand and it was in your garage right next to your car door mm-hmm. where your kids go in and out. Yeah. 
How many cans of spider spray do you buy if you think I'm not coming back for two years? So that was it. That's how I learned about sales was, oh, you can actually design sales around the human mind and the emotional journey that somebody goes on. And now it becomes a science. And at that point, it was interesting to me. Now that that makes a ton of sense. And what I love about that is, is, you know, and you being an analytical person, I imagined you logged the responses that you got to each of your, you know, it took you a while to get to that point, right? Yeah. You basically yeah. had to look at the data and say, okay, what kind of a response am I getting to this question or this, the way I phrase this? Because the, yeah. the way that you phrased it in the, in the intro made a lot of sense because you, you're right. They're just saying yes to you offering them products that you feel like would be good for their home. They're not yeah. saying yes to the products themselves, right? But it gets them saying yes. It gets the relationship started. And then, you know, uh, in door-to-door, we want the one and done. Knock on the door, close, walk away, never to be heard from again, right? And that's not, you know, long-term, that's not how you're going to build a sales pipeline, right? And yeah. so the fact that you're willing to do the work at the front end, qualify the customer properly, and then deliver when you actually get in front of the, do- uh, the door again, shows them that um, effort, I guess you could say. And yet you're building a relationship, not necessarily just a one and done customer. Yeah. I, I mean, I, to me, it's like <clears throat> I, I grew up uh, mountaineering and rock climbing. Mm-hmm. Right? Mountaineering is harder than rock climbing because you got you to gotta get there and get back and then you got to climb the damn thing. And some of these mountains were <clears throat> kind of remote and a fairly common problem you face mountaineering is getting across the stream. It doesn't sound like a big deal, but you can't walk on water. You know, at least I can't, maybe you can, but I can't so change it into wine and then walk on it. That doesn't work. <laughs> so you got to get across somehow. Well, you have to have a strategy that says, I'm going to go from this rock to that rock. You have to make the strategy up in your mind with your eyes, know something about what you can jump to, is it safe? You're doing this often with maybe 80, 90 pounds on your back. You know, how are you going to do that? Well, if you just like, I'm going straight across, if that's your approach, like oh, shortest distance between two points, you're going to get really wet and probably have some issues. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to go out and then come back some, you know, it's, that's how the stream works is it's got rocks in certain places. Human beings are the same way. The emotional journey they have to go on in order to accept you as an expert who's on their side, starts from where they are. And there are some rocks you have to go to. There are some places you got to jump to that are not by from me, that are along the way. Right. And I think that's the big problem in sales. I call it the problem of the dog, the piece of meat, and the chain link fence. Most dogs, being dogs, if you put a piece of meat on one side of a chain link fence, you put the dog on the other side, the dog tries to go through the fence, over the fence, through the fence, bloodies its face. The gate could be open 10 feet to the right. And the dog will never back up and look at the situation. Think, oh, first to get to the meat, I have to go away from the meat. Right. And most salespeople won't go away from the meat. No, that's huge. And there's two ways that you, you go away from the meat. One is, you know, we call it warm with form, which is building rapport, right? Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're not straight line selling. You're not going straight to the point. You're building rapport. You're getting that no like, and trust factor, right? And then the second one is you ask qualifying questions. You know, it's it's not taking you directly to the sale, but it's helping you understand, okay, like you said, you back up and you assess the situation by asking questions instead of telling them what they need, you know? And so yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree with that more. 
And it's a delicate thing, right? Qualifying questions are really, you're asking for a confession of their, of their secrets. So what kind of relationship do you have to have with somebody before they'll confess their secrets to you? You better be a That's father. The <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You better be a religious I mean, there's, leader. <laughs> there's a reason that the confessional on the other side of it, you don't get to know who the person is. Even if you know who it is, you don't know who it is, right? Officially, so to speak, right? right? Hence the screen and the whole bit. <clears throat> so it's very similar. And the key to me, and this comes down to technology, technology trying to do selling will always fail except for trivial sales. And in B2B, it always fails. And it fails for a simple reason. The trust threshold that's required for you to exceed as the seller is quite high. This person in B2B is risking their career. So a homeowner might be risking their money. And with something like solar, you know, it's, all, it's significant, right? And it's actually significant in two ways because it affects the resale value of their house, which they're not an expert at. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's going on in their world and it's big. It's like almost like a home sale. It's got that kind of, huh, you know, but something like a car is actually simpler because the aftermarket for cars is well understood. If I buy a Tesla for $68,000, and I find out after I get it home that I'm allergic to electricity and it makes, you know, it makes me itch when I'm sitting in the seat because nobody's ever found out that you could be allergic to electricity, right? So here I got to dump the car and it's two weeks later and I got to dump the car. So my $68,000 car is going to sell for, well, nowadays, maybe 69000 but yeah, that's <laughs> back, <true. laughs> in the, back in the day, it might sell for 63000 So I'm out 6000 bucks and the effort to buy the car and some other stuff, which I will make back over time. So I'm gonna amortize that loss with my income over years, really, when you come right down to it, right? I'm unlikely to go out of business as a human being who can buy a Tesla because I screwed up and now I've lost 6,000 bucks. Make that Tesla into a $68,000 system that I buy for my company. So I'm, not, you know, maybe I am the boss, maybe I'm not the boss, doesn't make any difference. If it doesn't fit, if my, my company's allergic to it, and it doesn't fit, say it's for a sales system supposed to work with my CRM. Well, say it turns out to be harder than we thought. And that six month integration project is now a two year integration project, and we're not getting any value. And the engineers that we had to hire to make it work turn out to be three times as expensive and five times less available, whatever, right? It's my reputation. My reputation is tied to my career. My career is worth more than my house. How much money do you make in your career compared to what your house costs? Well, that's obvious. If your house costs more than your career, you couldn't afford the house. Right. Right? So here I've got the most valuable material possession in the world, my professional reputation on the line for a, what is really a fairly small purchase compared to the value of my career. Say I'm making 200 grand a year. It's a $68,000 thing. It's not, it's nothing. Right. Except it's my retirement. Yeah. It's my next job. It's my kid's college education. It's, and I, and I already have it. And you know how people hate to give up what they have, right? So I'm afraid of you as the seller, if you're offering me something really valuable for my company and to overcome that fear, I've got to end up trusting you more than I trust myself. 
because I can't trust myself because I'm not an expert. You're the expert. You're the seller. I'm not the expert. So how much do I have to trust you? More than I trust me. Anthony Iannarino's new book opens with the following quote. People buy from people they trust to make a decision more than they trust themselves to make that decision. I love that. I think I got the quote wrong and it's a quote of me. It says Chris Beal at the end of the quote. So I was kind of shocked (laughs) when I thought it's like, wait a minute, Anthony, what are you doing? Quoting me in your book? You know, it's like right there in the intro, but his point is, and it was my point is sellers are not taught in general that the threshold of trust that needs to be crossed before it becomes easy is they've got to be trusted more than that person trusts themselves with this decision. They think they have to be trusted more than their competition. But in fact, the winner is almost always no decision. In the solar business, I bet the winner is almost always no decision. Yeah, we'll think about it, right? Yeah. I got to talk to my wife, my husband, my dog, my brother. (laughs) I'm selling the house. I might be selling. I don't know. And all this uncertainty comes in, right? And when they trust you or your seller more than they trust themselves, because your seller is an expert and they aren't with that big decision, then it gets easy. Now we're down to brass tacks. Now we're down to, okay, you know, how much, blah, 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 all the stuff that goes into the deal. But that hump that's a big hump and it's made of one element, which is trust. It doesn't have another one. Like they got to believe you're an expert. That's the easy part. Right. They, they got to believe that's your title, you know, solar expert. <laughs> exactly. So now the question is, do they, do they trust you with their life, so to speak? Mm-hmm. And well, that's your job is to become more trusted than they trust themselves with this decisions. So I go into a surgeon. Would you go to, a surgeon, say you had, I don't know, you get as old as me and you grow up in the sun, right? So you're going to end up with something on your face at some point that some, some doctor's going to look at it and say, you know what? That's got to come off. Right. right. Well, do you go to a surgeon? You know, if you thought you could do it yourself, I'll, I'll just go in. Let, let me just get myself a razor blade and a mirror and I'll do this. You know, if you thought you could do that, you do it, but you've got to, you've got to get a surgeon that you trust more than you trust yourself. And it's with something you've got to go around with the rest of your life, which is your face. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't kind of get away from that. And so people are really, really cautious buyers on stuff that's important. And sellers think they can overcome this with push and enthusiasm, which has the opposite effect. All it does is fast forward the untrusting <laughs> process. You know what I mean? <laughs> Especially when they're not showing a genuine, a genuine concern, you know, genuine interest in their prospect. So first of all, I love the way this conversation started. Um, You know, it was completely natural. And um, the reason that I wanted you, you know, I, I I got the match request for the podcast. And the reason that I wanted you on it, because a lot of what we talk about on this podcast is about building great sales teams, right? That's the title of the podcast. But it, it, it's a lot to do with the human element, right? And everything that I teach and um, that I consult on is to do with sales programs, right? And less, you know, I do bring on people for the tools. But what I liked about um, y'all's tools is you were mixing it with the human element, you know? And then, and then you go back and you look at your history of software startups and everything. And, you know, I'm always curious, you know, 
when people get to that point in their career where it's like, okay, I've, I've done this for 30 years. What are they going to do now? You know, which is, is exciting to me. And you can tell you're completely passionate about what you're doing and you get to execute at a level you've probably never executed at before. So, you know, I guess one of my questions was, why, why software? You know, and it, it makes a lot of sense now that I've heard some of your story about door-to-door, the analytical part of it, you know, and the technology. But I guess what, where did you make that transition from, from door-to-door to software? And I know there's probably a big leap in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> With college, well, the door to door thing was to make money, right? The right. beauty of it is, I learned a ton, I didn't expect to. I was, I read, I was single mindedly going to make money, and you know, as a desperate person, I was going to figure out a way to cross that river, right? And yeah. so, when, once I figured it out, it was so much fun, and everybody else was complaining about it, going, guys, this is like the most fun in the world, right? Right? So, I, I sort of forgot about that, and I, I moved off to Denver, I was living in Phoenix at the time, I was married. And I needed to have like a regular job, I thought, you know, something that was going to make a a living. And I have a degree in physics and a degree in education. And it's like, how am I going to do this? Well, there's no physics jobs to be had that were remotely reasonable. Like, you know, move to a mesa in the middle, uh, alone in the middle of New Mexico and do X was not going to work for my wife. Might have worked for me, but it wasn't going to work for her. So I saw, and I knew something about software. I've been writing some software some from 1968 when I was a freshman in high school. We actually had access to a computer many thousands of miles away through a teletype machine. And, and we had a club that did that. You know, it was a nerdy kind of thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. You learned computer programming. In 68, yeah. this was not that common. It was the same computer Bill Gates was working on, actually, at the same year. I'm exactly his age. I was going to say, this brings a, a lot of, you know, I've watched obviously several times Jobs and Steve Jobs, the different movies that have been made about him and kind of the, that history. And I, and I love that you were in the middle of that. That's amazing. It's that era. Yeah. yeah. And so, and what was more fun for a kid than to make something that talks back to you? Like you just didn't get to do that, right? Maybe some manufacturer makes something that pretends to talk to you, but this is like making your own creature. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, and I found it to be very, very easy. It just happens to be a fit of mind for me that I found software to be easy. So there was a job that was being offered over at NCR. It was within walking distance of my house in Denver, which was amazing. It was an obscure, like I couldn't figure out what the job was. And I went over there and applied for it. And they put me in a room with 30 people and we were all taking a test, pencil and paper test. And it had weird like stuff on it, like ships and destinations. The current's like this, the wind's like this. You know, it was all this sort of intelligence test kind of stuff. I, love I thought it was, it was very interesting that they were doing that. So I looked around the room and I thought, I bet I have less experience in software than anybody in this room. So I finished my test really fast, stood outside and interviewed the top people by just body language that I thought were very confident and asked them how many years of experience they had in the software world. And they were all like three years, five years, four years. And I was zero, right? So I knew that I wasn't going to get the job. <laughs> there was no, no doubt in my mind I was not going to get the job. So I just went into, this is how I ended up in the software world. This is your, your question, right? Yeah. So I, and I could tell the future of software was infinite because hardware kept getting more expensive. People kept getting more expensive. But the next time you use a piece of software, it's free. Right. So I'm always looking for what I call zero on the denominator. 
right? When you have a piece of math and you can put zero in the denominator, you get infinity out of the equation. So where is the infinite value for society? It's in software to make stuff work together. More and more things are going to need to work together. That's going to go on without bound. My career is going to be 45, 50 years long. Okay, I want to do something where I don't have to switch. So that was why it was attractive. And I just went in and took the job. I mean, the guy, great guy um, that I interviewed with, Gary. And I sat down in Gary's office and Gary said, so, uh, and I said, Gary, before you say anything, I know you're not going to offer me this job. And Gary says, well, well, how do you know that? And I said, well, I was pretty sure up until this moment. Now you just told me you aren't going to offer me the job. So, <laughs> <laughs> and he says, huh. And I said, and before you make that mistake, I want to tell you that usually when you don't offer somebody a job, it's not a big deal. You get another candidate, everything's fine. But it's clear to me you need an anchor in this group who can handle supporting technology, new technology across these 10 state area in the West. I'm an expert on this 10 state area. I know more about Wyoming and Montana, the small towns, because I've been climbing here for 10 years. I've been to these places. I know these people. I know what it's like out on the reservation. I know what it's like in a small town where they've got, you know, somebody has to manage the utilities and the, and the, and the city hall at the same time. I know how these people think and I know how to interact with them. And I'm a pretty good technologist. So you'll be making a huge, huge career mistake if you don't give me a chance. And if it doesn't work out, the beauty is you can fire me. And he says, huh. And I said, so I'm going to make it easy for you. I know everybody has more experience than I do. I interviewed the top people. And so I'm going to work for you for six months for free. And then at the end of that, we're going to adjust my compensation to whatever's fair, not based on it being free, but based on what's what makes sense. We're going to look at other people, what they're doing, going to stack me up against them, or we're going to jump to that point. And he says, well, I can't pay you nothing. And I said, well, that's not my problem. That's your problem. It's a telephone. I'm sure it connects to HR. Find out how little you can pay me. So he actually got on the phone and said, I can pay you. <laughs> The minimum amount I can pay is $14,300 a year. And I said, done under one condition. He says, what's that? I said, I start right now. So I stood up, held my hand out, he shook my hand, and I was in the software industry. So he never interviewed you? Ever since. He never interviewed you? No. I love that. He just took control of the conversation. <laughs> you know, in, I saved him. But it I was, saved him. It was surprising that... If, if if any company was going to hire you with no experience, it's a company that was doing intelligence testing in their interview process. Either, the, either they didn't believe in that, or I, I would have thought that would have been the factor that said, no, actually, I was going to hire you because of your test. Well, I, I knew I'd, I knew I'd out-tested everybody. Right. Because I knew my own background. I knew, like, I had... Uh, shall we say done very well on the national math contest in 1972. Yeah. So I knew my test taking abilities are quite back then were quite uh, good. Mm -hmm. And so I just left that. That's like, okay, I know that. So there's no point in talking about it. Gotcha. What I want to do is keep him. I, I, I want to save him a bunch of time. I know he's not looking forward to interviewing all these people. And I could tell by the nature of the group, it was a brand new group mm -hmm. that he could get away with this hire because I had the degree, I had the GPA, I had, you know, that stuff. Right. He could like formally slot it in. 
and he could take the risk. And now I was saving him a bunch of budget. And I also know, because my dad used to be in procurement, that saving somebody money is not generally a big deal unless they're trying to parse out a budget for other things. So I just gave him back slush money that he could use some other way. And he was going into an uncertain situation. So I was trying to solve problems for him. And for me, the problem was I didn't have a job in the software industry and I wanted one. It, it wasn't, I didn't have a job that paid. I didn't care about that. Right. I wanted in. I wanted in the door. So I got in. And six months later, we went to do the adjustment because that was still part of the deal. He said they couldn't do it. I took a piece of paper. I wrote a resignation letter, one line. I handed it to him and walked out the door. Wow. That's a hell of a story. So we wouldn't be doing this podcast justice if we didn't get into the connect and sell product. You know, I know we've mentioned it, you know, briefly kind of an overview of what it does, but can you dive into that a little more? So, and specifically, I have a lot of people in solar and roofing that, that listen to this show. And, um, so if, you know, traditionally we do door-to-door, right? But there is a lot that are doing virtual, you know, they're doing marketing, they're turning into marketing companies, right? Which I think is, 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 is your demographic and you have a great tool for. So, you know, if I'm in roofing, if I'm in solar, how do you feel like those organizations can utilize Connect and Sell? Well, so what Connect and Sell does super simple. You push a button, you wait, you talk to somebody on your list. It takes all of the go to voicemail away. And if you're calling on corporate phone numbers, which by the way, calling people at work on their corporate number is a really good idea because there's not much regulatory stuff around that. Everybody thinks I got to call them on their cell or they imagine they still have home phones or whatever. But in fact, the best place to catch somebody who owns a home is to catch somebody who has the who owns a home and has the income to support that home ownership, which probably means they have a job and it's probably a reasonable paying job. So you can call them at work. Nobody does this, right? Because it's too painful to call people at work. You have to ask their gatekeeper for a transfer. You have to navigate their phone system. It's just so slow and painful. So whether it's a cell phone number or a work phone number with connect and sell, you don't have to care. You don't have to think you just push the button you wait, you go about your business, you're doing something else. You're sending that critical email or you're thinking or you're petting your cat, whatever it is right. that you think is important at that moment. And then at some point, usually about two, three minutes, bloop, there's a tone in your ear and it pops up in the screen, shows you who you're talking with and what you're talking with them about. So if it's a first conversation, you put all those in one list. So you, you know, you know what your cold opening is like and so forth. If it's a follow-up, you actually know where the previous conversation left off and you have a teleprompt for yourself of how to continue that's specific. So now you're a genius because you do no work at all, but all your follow-ups are perfect, which is kind of cool. And you do it efficiently. You do it, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10 conversations with people you want to talk to per hour. At first it's spooky it really is a weird product at first because, I mean, it's so simple, but I've seen shaking hands. I've measured heart rates as high as 162 beats a minute on people who are about to do it for the first time. Yeah. And then after two or three conversations, you relax. It's like, you know, when you're a kid and you're learning to drive. Yeah, It's easy to learn to drive out, out in the country, right? You just drive. Oh, it's like I got to keep the car on the road. 
And then it's kind of you get into, oh, I can drive through intersections with lights and stuff. And then it's like, now we got to merge onto the freeway. My, Holy moly. My driving instructor had to push his brake and pull us over to the side of the highway because I wasn't getting on fast enough. <laughs> That's it. That feeling, right? And I bet, if, I bet if you'd had a heart rate monitor on that first time you're merging onto the freeway, it's, it's way up there, right? Yeah. And then after a while, merging onto a freeway becomes like the easiest thing in the world, right? You match yourself to the traffic. You know everybody's going to kind of do their thing, and you can almost do it blindfolded. That's what happens with connect and sell. Third button push. We call it pushing the button. Fourth. Then you start to relax. And then that's where the magic really starts. Because now once you're relaxed, your voice works for you instead of against you. And given that it's all about taking the other person on this emotional journey from fear, this is what we've learned. The party you're calling is not perturbed, upset, angry, all that stuff they express. They're actually afraid. They're afraid of you, the invisible stranger who just ambushed them. And in the environment of evolution in the village, an invisible stranger means it's nighttime and they're not from around here. They're from over there. And when they show up at night, they're not bringing us a Bud Light. They're just right. not. They're not nice people. Why would they come here to our village in the middle of the night? Uh, to change the demographics suddenly and violently. Yeah. Right? So we don't like that. We don't like being ambushed by invisible strangers. Well, when we cold call somebody and Connect and Sell lets you cold or warm call, whatever, you know, if you already have a relationship, you're, it's warm, but it's not warm in that instant, right? Because it's still an ambush. They weren't expecting the call. It's not scheduled. So when you do that, you're dealing with a very specific, predictable emotional state on the part of the other person. And it gives you a huge advantage. You know, they're afraid of you. And according to Chris Voss, if you show them, you can you see the world through their eyes and then you make it clear that you can solve a problem they have right now, they will immediately trust you. And they'll trust you for the rest of their life until you blow it. Become a pushy sales guy, you blow it. But that's an amazing thing. So what, what the technology does is like nice and all, and it's, it's impossible to build one of these. We have, at this moment right now, as we're speaking, we have 527 people navigating phone calls on behalf of you know hundreds of folks at this instant. So these people are inside of a machine, so to speak, mm-hmm. it's, these things are called mechanical Turks. So this technology is, is an old uh, far side cartoon that shows a polar bear looking at an igloo saying to another polar bear, I love these things, crunchy on the outside, chewy on the inside, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what this thing's like. It's technology on the outside, humans on the inside. And okay. the humans are what take care of all the variability that's tough, the phone systems, the gatekeepers, whatever, but they never talk to your target. When, you're tar- when I answer, if I'm on your list mm-hmm. and I answer, this is Chris, boom, that key goes down, we're connected, pops up on your screen, says Chris Beal, CEO, connect and sell. Say we'd spoken before, you know, whatever. Next voice I hear is yours. There's no delay. There's no weirdness. It's just, hey, you know, Doug here. Hey, Chris, I know I'm an interruption. I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. You're going to I believe we've discovered a breakthrough that completely eliminates the uncertainty and frankly, the waste that comes from getting all of your electricity just from the grid instead of being independent. And the reason I reached out to you today is to get 15 minutes on your calendar to share this breakthrough with you. Okay. Yeah, now your calendar available. 
that little thing right there, I just made that script up. It was probably right. wrong, but psychologically, all of it's right. Yeah. <laughs> and you notice it didn't have value in it. It just had curiosity. It, I wasn't going to value. I wasn't I going we to know each other. Sell. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm selling you a meeting with an expert who has a breakthrough. And if I were setting a meeting for you, if it was the other way around and I'm setting a meeting for you with, uh, you know, with Mary, right. And she goes, well, what's this about? And I'd say, what's about this breakthrough? You know, and I'd tell, I'd repeat the breakthrough. And let me tell you what, you're going to get to speak with uh, Doug Mitchell. And I've been thinking, I'm thinking right now, I can't think of a single person who's ever told me that meeting with Doug was a waste of their time. That's it. I'm selling the meeting with a human being. That's it. Third that. party validation of Doug. Like I can't, I can't, rem, I can't recall anyone has ever told me that meeting with Doug was a waste of their time. Cause that's all I'm asking for is their time, not their money. Right after we get off of this, I'm going to put that in our setter script for the doors. <laughs> Cause it is, <laughs> it's beautiful. I love it. So l- let me ask you, you know, no, normally at this point in the conversation, I ask what's next for your company, but I'm, I'm more curious now, what do you think is, is next for, I, I guess the, the sales industry in general, where do you think sales is headed? Is, is things like door to door dead is selling over the phone on the way out because of texting or will a computer be selling in the next 20 years? And I, obviously we've talked and alluded to a little bit of this. So I think I, I know your general answer, but I'm curious on specifics. Right. Well, there's a, a hard edge that's going to be very, very difficult for technology to cross. And I'm not going to predict it'll ever cross it. And, and it has to do with information flow. So to get to the point of trusting you, I need a lot of information from you. But I also need it really, really fast because you only have seven seconds to get me to trust you. This is you know, the FBI studied this deeply in hostage negotiation situations where they're very serious. Lives are on the line, right? Seven seconds. So I have a hard problem, which is how to get enough information from you into my brain that I trust you in seven seconds. And all important sales depend on trust. They, they go through trust now. If they're done right, they'll go through trust forever. The path to an important sale always goes through trust, not value. Because until you have trust, you can't talk value. You have to have trust first. I don't think that's ever going to change. And if somebody sends me an unsolicited text message, there's not enough information in there to allow me to trust them involuntarily. It doesn't matter what the message says. I only read at a certain speed. Say the text message is, or do an email. Say an email has got 100 words in it. Mm -hmm whatever it happens to have, right? A hundred words is a lot of words in an email. So am I going to read all hundred words? Maybe. How How much data is that? Well, each word is about five characters. So that's about 500 characters. And each character is about 10 bits of information. If you look in a computer, it takes 10 bits, actually takes eight. But now we have fancy characters like emojis and stuff like that. So let's say it's 10 bits, right? And it's easier to multiply. So now I have 500 times 10, so that's 5,000 bits. That sounds like a lot. If I send you an email, what are the chances you're going to read it and open it? I send you a text, what are the chances you're going to open it and really interact with it instead of just, like I get four or five unsolicited texts a day. They're gone. They're gone, right? So what are the odds of that? But then 
if you do read it, did I get enough? Did you get enough information? If you sent it to me, did I get enough information to involuntarily trust you? Well, now we need to know how much information is required in the human brain as the threshold for trust. And it turns out it's about 140, 150,000 bits. So an email is 5,000 bits. That's a lot of emails. <laughs> 150 right. of overflow. That's a big number, right? Yeah. Human conversation, human voice carries 20,000 bits a second. Almost all of it emotional information, almost all of it in the tone. So to look at the future of sales tech and say, what's the problem? Well, the problem is I need trust. Only the human voice allows me to get trust in the amount of time I have to get it. So technology has got to help me get human conversations. Otherwise, I'm going to be in a world where there's no trust and I'm not going to sell anything. That is, I will always be outcompeted by somebody who gets trust, which means door-to-door is always going to be around because door-to-door, I get that seven seconds. Right. Telephone ambush will always be around because in telephone ambush, I get those seven seconds. Mm-hmm. I get a pipeline directly into your midbrain, into your emotional center, and I get 140,000 bits I get to jam in there, almost all of them emotional, and you can't do anything about it. You, you could pretend to do something about it, but you can't do anything about it. You hear it. It's like that person next to you when you're trying to have a quiet dinner by yourself or, and they're chewing and talking and whatever, and you can't get that. that that's going in, man. Yeah. Right. That's who you are. So I actually think what's going to happen is sales technology. And this, is, I, I have to believe this, or I wouldn't run connect and sell, right. I'd be right. a crazy person. Right. Is that we're going to get more and more sophisticated about using, and I, and I don't mean using in a manipulative way, just using the human voice in order to allow somebody to, to move in the direction of crossing that trust threshold where they trust the seller more than they trust themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think actually the revolution in sales is not about technology, it's about ethics. That's where I think the revolution in sales is. That is, Technology allows, enables ethical sales to take place. It just does. It, in fact, it almost forces them to take place because the ethical salesperson will outcompete the unethical salesperson given the same technology for getting that emotional connection with somebody. Yeah. And, and so, in, in fact, I don't see that technology is the big play. Technology brings sufficient efficiency to allow what's already effective to be used more widely. Connect and sell is an efficiency play around the human voice. It's too inefficient now to get people on the phone. It might take you an hour. Right. We get it down to three minutes. Now it's efficient. Now the effectiveness is already kind of latent in the human voice. Well, how do you bring that out? Well, if you bring it out sincerely, ethically, you have an advantage over the person who brings it out insincerely. So the math actually collapses, interestingly enough, in a surprising area in sales, which is sincerity. Mm -hmm. This is actually take, you're an expert. Sales becomes more like medicine over time. We don't sit around and worry that a doctor has our best interests at heart. There are charlatan doctors out there, right? I get it. Absolutely. But when I go to, you know, my... Uh, my ophthalmologist, and she does a set of tests on me and says, hey, you have 
uh, you have glaucoma that's developed more than you might think in your right eye. Let me show you where your visual field is missing. I don't think she's making that stuff up. I thought like, oh my God, she's doing that to sell me a prescription. I'm thinking she sincerely wants to see if she can work with me to halt the, the degradation of vision in my right eye, which by the way, is actually happening with me. Sales is a very untrusted profession right now because it's the history of sales has been hit and run. Right. Sales developed at the crossroads. Sales didn't exist in the village, but it existed along trading routes where somebody had something to sell to somebody who was going off somewhere and not coming back. Right. Because everybody died who went there, right? Yeah. But they had to have, you know a pan to cook stuff in and they had to have some beans. And what'd you sell them? You sold them the worst beans you could. You put the good beans on the top and, right. but you scoop from the bad beans underneath. That's sales. That sales history of sales goes back thousands and thousands of years. Now we have a world of transparency where everything's got feedback loops. Everybody knows, you know, everybody's reviewed. It's hard to hide. So given that the most impactful thing you can do in sales is have a conversation with somebody it used to be you could be manipulative, right? But you're going to be outcompeted by somebody who is not manipulative and is an, is as expert as you. So the, the competition and the technology are going to drive sales in the direction of higher ethics. I think that's what's going to happen. And as as someone who has a mission statement and core values, and our second core value is we operate with integrity. That's exciting for me. Um, I just want to point out a few things that you said which are just huge and revelations in my opinion. You know, the idea that technology can't keep up with the human voice. I love that concept because it makes so much sense. It's logical in our, in our heads and in our emotions, but I've never had it broken down like that to the bits of data, which, all right, now we have an analytical reason that sales is never going to go away. You know, sales done by humans is never going to go away. Yeah. And then, and then we have a a uh, mental reason as or an emotional reason as well because of the sincerity and the trust factor. And and you're right. The the first step in every sale is trust. And if yeah. if I don't have the right amount of data in technology to create that trust or enough time to create it, like you said, the seven seconds, my my voice can a hundred x that amount of data, which is really cool to think about and as much as i would love to talk about this for another couple of hours <laughs> it, it, we both have jobs to do it turned yeah exactly and it and it turns out people don't like super long uh podcasts um, you cut them up cut them up into pieces yeah yeah and you know that's what i normally do when when things are going really well you know and I, i'm very interested in this in the next question i want to respect your time because we are over an hour now but i do have one more question for you if you have the time I've got the time. Let me just quick, quick check. I don't think I have anything right now. Okay. No, I have an appointment with myself. Cool. Okay, great. Shoot. So what, this is a question I ask every guest on the podcast, and it's because it's something that I'm studying and I'm very interested in, and that's legacy. So the question is, is two parts. What does legacy mean to you? And what legacy are you going to leave behind? So I think of legacy two ways. One is with regard to what I do professionally and, in, and having, having stuff work better, you know, it could be incrementally, it could be revolutionarily, but having stuff work better for lots of people who are trying to accomplish the things they're trying to accomplish. 
and have that be lasting. I've, I've never really thought about, oh, you know, make a whole bunch of money and give it to charity or whatever, because I think that's kind of second order. I think the first charitable gift is your professional gift to the community that you serve, whatever that happens to be. In my case right now, it's sales, it's sales managers, it's people who own companies, and I suppose they're investors and so forth. Right. So success to me and, and legacy is I, I look at the companies that are right now, I look at companies that are using our product and dominating their markets. And I think of the like the jobs, right? One of our companies that we work with went from 400 million in revenue to a billion in, in four years, primarily by reaching out and talking to people. And I think that's a lot of lives that, that you know, that's a ripple effect, right? That goes on for Absolutely. a long time. The other is the other way around, which is I have the privilege of working with lots of people who are on my team or who I interact with professionally. That they're, It's just it's people as people, not within the context of the product or anything. It's professional, but it's not like they use connect and sell as professional. Like I like this podcast. I mean, hopefully for me, legacy would be somebody listens to this and says, huh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. And they do something different. And as a result of doing something different, they're, they, you know, they prosper, they thrive, their family does better. Yeah. Those ripple effects coming from the, the people I get to work with on my own team out into that broader community, that's where, you know, that's where it goes, right? Uh, I've got a couple of people who say, hey, your legacy ought to be a book. Why aren't you writing a book? Well, I tried to write a book and it became a podcast. So maybe you <laughs> come out of it someday. <laughs> The damn thing turned into a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, anyway, um, and there is a book, by the way, because you focus on teams that I'll mention. Uh-huh. My wife just sent her book off to the printers and it'll launch on November 1. It's called Love Your Team, A Survival Guide for Sales Managers in a Hybrid World. And that captures my idea of legacy of Love Your Team. And it's really, she's a mechanical engineer, by the way. So she broke down the problem of retention of top talent in an engineering sense and found that the solution actually is to focus on the people as individuals on your team and help them not only execute their jobs, but go where they're trying to go in their lives. And that actually is the mechanical engineer's solution to the problem of top talent retention, which is the problem with sales teams. Let's face it. Right. So it's so interesting that you you work on that. Mm-hmm. When her book comes out, I think that it, it's going to shake up some stuff because the 17 conversations you need to master with your team one on one. That if you master these conversations and apply them at the right time, your top people will stay and perform outstandingly. And when it's time for them to go, you're going to be the one to help them get that next job. So the second thing I'm going to do after we get off of this is uh, send my info to, to you to send to your wife because we need to get her on the podcast now. That's, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. you know, and, I, and I love that concept because we, we execute on that internally. We believe that it's, okay, product knowledge, or I'm sorry, uh, sales knowledge, product knowledge, leadership knowledge, and then life knowledge. And we call it our freedom training. And it, I love it, it. it it's beyond, okay, you know, what can you execute on at this company? It's beyond that. It's like, what can we teach you that you're going to execute in, in, in life in general? And not like personal, professional, but like 
Something as simple as people don't teach to 99 salespeople how to set up their taxes, how to set up an LLC, how to offset their expenses and not, you know, pay out everything that they're earning to the tax man. You know what I mean? And yeah. so, you know, simple things like that onto investing and mindset and meditation and all these things that, you know, we get introduced as CEOs and entrepreneurs, but uh, our salespeople aren't, you know, we're not transferring that down, you know? And so I think that's massive, and I, I love the title of her book, and I'm excited to read it, for sure. I, I, I'm really excited. Thanks for that. I'll, I'll definitely pass it along. It launches November 1. Okay. Um, I think it's good. It's one of those things that the phrase popped out in a presentation that she was giving last year in the summer, mm-hmm. and she couldn't think of any other words to say it. And so it was a presentation just about retaining top talent, not just about, that's a big deal, right? right but right. it was it was just one bullet. And she finally sort of almost gave up and said, this is the only phrase that I can think of, which is, this is what describes what I do, is love your team. Because I pointed out to her, it's like, what you do is weird. I've been watching her for, you know, like three years. And it's uh-huh. like, this is weird, what you do, it's not normal. And so it's, and, and the audience's response, it was a small audience, about 30 very high level sales leaders. Mm -hmm. And the audience response was electric, just to that phrase, love your team. And that was the seed of doing the immense amount of work that it takes to make a book. I I mean, we were on our honeymoon for nine weeks. There were seven full read throughs of the book. One night she was, we were leaving at four in the morning to fly to Shetland. She's up at one 30 in the morning, working on getting something back to the publisher. So, you know, it's a huge amount of work. But I believe that that work is going to make a difference. And it's, it's talk about a legacy. I Absolutely. think that's that's real stuff. No, it, it's such a simple phrase, but it makes so much sense. And, and it just it, it falls on accepting ears for sure. All right, Chris. Well, this has been, you know, I, you know, I have expectations. We all set expectations on, you know, things like this. And on our podcast, you have your own as well. So you know what I'm saying? And it far exceeded my expectations. So I really appreciate you coming on. And, uh, you know, if, if, if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with you, we're going to include all your information in the links as well as I would love a link to your wife's book so that we can include that as well. Since we mentioned it here and talked about it. And, uh, again, appreciate you coming on the show. It's great to be here. Awesome. I mean, just, you know, your day has to start somehow, right? This is a heck of a way to start the day. This is fantastic. So thanks so much, Doug. Absolutely. Let's get building. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Building Great Sales Teams. We appreciate it. Make sure you like, share, and leave a review wherever you consume podcasts and subscribe so you're notified when we release new content. Great sales teams aren't recruited. They are built. Brick by brick. Let's get building.